and First uh, Chronicles. We're going to read a couple different places tonight. First Chronicles chapter uh, one, and I appreciate that song, Miss Hannah. Thank you very much. First Chronicles chapter one. Stand with me as you turn. And then go to the very end of 2 Chronicles, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and then we're going to come back here shortly to chapter 21 when we come to the message here. But if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 1, uh, that first verse, it says, Adam, Seth, Seth, and Enos, Adam, Seth, and Enoch. And then if you go all the way to the last book of 2, or the end of the second book, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, and if you were to read to verse 14, it says, Moreover, the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abomination of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he hath hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up betimes and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God and despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people till there was no remedy. Therefore he brought upon them the king of the Chaldees, who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion upon young men or maiden, old men, or him that stooped for age. He gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burnt the house of God, and brake down the wall of Jerusalem, and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire, and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And then that escaped from the sword carried he away to Babylon, where they were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the king of Persia, kingdom of Persia, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten years. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing and saying, Thus saith the Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build them a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for the scripture, especially these two books that you bring our attention to tonight. And Lord, I pray again that you would speak to our hearts this evening from your word, uh, that you'd open up the scripture and, and make it fresh in our eyes and mind tonight. We love you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. First and Second Chronicles, once again, much like First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, are were actually originally one book, and uh, were actually originally one book, and they're not merely a duplication. A lot of times in our mind we see them as a duplication of of First and Second Kings, but the Greek translators gave Chronicles the title of things. Things omitted, things omitted. Uh, there are things in this that did not occur in the other historical books, but um, I like what, uh, what John Phillips said about these books. He said this, The books of kings give us history from the viewpoint of the prophets. Chronicles gives us the viewpoint of the priest. The book of kings give us a history from the human standpoint. Chronicles from the divine standpoint. The former shows man ruling, the latter shows God overruling. The revival under Hezekiah, for example, is given in three verses in Kings, but in three chapters in Chronicles. God gives us a little bit different view. In the Kings, we see it from the eyes of the prophets, and God gives more of a historical standpoint and a little bit of that history. But in, the, in these books of First and Second Chronicles, the Lord records it from the, the standpoint of a priest. And so uh, we see a lot of those things come on, on the scene, specifically that of, of revival and, and what God would do and giving them the opportunity to turn back to him. The temple would take a prominent role in these books. 
Uh, it was, a matter of fact, even in the kings that are highlighted in these books, conceived in the mind of David and constructed under the guidance of Solomon, contaminated by some of the kings and cleansed by others, and at the last, consumed in fire that demolished Jerusalem. And, of course, here at the end, we see the Cyrus, king of Persia, giving the order to go back and rebuild the, the temple. It was a little bit of God letting us see some of the history of Israel from the standpoint of the priests and from the standpoint of the temple, uh, that place where God was supposed to be among his people. The writer of this book seems to have been Ezra the scribe. Uh, There is a resemblance in the style and the language to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in some of the books from the Jews, the the older copies of this, they were actually one book. First and Second Chronicles, Ezra and Nehemiah, which kind of give that direction that it was that it was Ezra that the Lord would use to to write this book. The book of Chronicles was written after the cap, captivity in Babylon was over, and the return return remnant found themselves back in the land of promise with a with a task before them. It was written after it versus Kings, uh, some of it before, and uh, but God gives us that glimpse backward, and I, I love the the differences and. As you look at the two, the books of First and Second Kings and the book of First uh, and Second Chronicles, and it's uh, the Lord lets us see the same events, sometimes more events, from, from a different viewpoint. Uh, much like the Gospels, if you were to open up and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you would see many of the same events, but from a, a different viewpoint. And uh, probably not a good illustration, but an illustration is if four people were on four different corners of an intersection. And an accident happened right in the intersection there in the, in the middle of the intersection. Each of them could give an eyewitness account of what they saw. But their account would be slightly different, not wrong, but different from the viewpoint at which they had. What, what drew their attention, what they saw, and all of those things would be seen. And, and in this book, God lets us see the history of Israel, from the, of the king specifically, from the standpoint of the priest and the temple, and what God was doing. And so you'll see the the revivals that God would bring into Israel a little bit more to the forefront, and some of the things that God is trying to do, even in through the, the nation of Judah, Israel, the northern kingdom, is, is, only, is briefly mentioned in these books, but not certainly not highlighted. The purpose, the theme and purpose of the book, uh, the willingness of God to send revival and renewal, and reformation when there is a spirit of repentance, God's desire... Matter of fact, we looked at these verses a minute ago, but look at 2 Corinthians or 2 Chronicles 36, verse 14. Moreover, all the chief priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord, which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by his messengers, rising up at times and sending because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked the messengers of God, despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people till there was no remedy. The people turned and turned away, but God gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to stay, to turn back towards him. I am thankful for the mercy and the grace of God. Uh, you know, many times people look at the Old Testament and say, well, I don't see much of it. And yet, if you look, friend, it's, it's all the way through. It's all the way through the scripture. And we see it in the nation of Judah and Israel. And the many times, many times that God would send them a prophet, the many times they had the opportunity of revival, and yet they would turn away. And I, there is a caution there. That verse in verse 16 finishes with this, till there was no remedy. 
Till there, now those are some scary words for everybody, isn't it? Till there was no remedy. There is a time when God says, well, I'm, I'm going to really get your attention. And in this passage of scripture here, we see he would allow them to go for 70 years into captivity. But we see the willingness of God. Chronicles begins with a list of names. As a matter of fact, I, I read just a few of them a minute ago in 1 Corinthians, but you see Adam there in the beginning, and God gives that genealogy uh, there. Most of us probably, I'm sure that's not your favorite book, favorite chapters of the Bible. Is anybody, would anybody say, you know, the, uh, First Corinthians, or First Chronicles 1 through 9, those genealogies, that's my favorite part of the scripture, all right? And, uh, and maybe some, it is, all right? But, but it's, it's lengthy, and many times when we come to those in our Bible reading, we, we rush through them and uh, things of that nature. But there's some incredible truths that are wrapped up, especially in First Chronicles, I think one of the things that always stands out to my mind is God's care for the individual. I am thankful for that. I am thankful that we serve a God who cares for the individual and notices where we're at in our life. I think you see that in the genealogies that, you know, sometimes there are times in our life when we feel, does God even notice? And yet the genealogy reminds us, God notices God takes note. But in 1 Chronicles, if you were to read the, the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament, uh, it was not in the same order. We, devote, we, we, we uh, group the old books of the Old Testament by topic. Uh, the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. We, we, books of history, uh, which we would include this in. Uh, books of, of pro, or, or of poetic, the poetic books, the, the minor prophets, the major prophets. And we group them by, by topic. But in the Hebrew Bible, in the time of Christ, for, for Second Chronicles was the last book of, their, of the Old Testament. It was the last of the Old Testament. And what is unique about that is in First Chronicles chapter 1 and through 9, you see the genealogy that would begin with Adam and would go all the way up, uh, up really up. I'm going to see if I, I have it here. I, I made a note here, but it goes all the way up to just at the end there, but then it's picked back up. So if you will, if you were to go to Matthew chapter one and you be see in Matthew chapter one, you see the genealogy once again pick up and it leads us straight to Christ. So if you were to read in the Hebrew Bible, the last, those last of the books of the Old Testament, you would read that genealogy and you could pick up in the book of New Testament and see the line that takes us right up to the Messiah. And you'd see God working as, as how God had a plan all the way through the ages. Before the foundation of the world was laid, God had a plan. And you see it in those genealogies as the Lord would bring it through. There's a Bible called the Companion Bible. And in the notes of the Companion Bible, it says this. These books belong to quite another part of the Old Testament and do not follow in sequence on the books of kings. They are, according to the Hebrew canon, the conclusion of the Old Testament. And the genealogies here lead up to that of Matthew 1.1 and the commencement of the New Testament. They end with the ending of the kingdom and the question of Cyrus, who is there? In 2 Chronicles 36.23, we just read that, is followed by the answer, where is he? In Matthew 2.2. And the proclamation of the kingdom by the rightful king and his forerunner. It begins with the first Adam and leads to the last Adam. It deals with the kingdom of Judah because Christ was proclaimed the successor of David. God lets us see from the first Adam to the last Adam, from the one who brought sin into this world to the one who would finally deal with sin for all of eternity in those genealogies. He lets us see God's work from the beginning all the way up to Calvary in our life. And I am thankful for a God who has a plan at work 
always has and always will. We see it in this plan of redemption. Some of these passages of scripture that you and I often, you know, skip over and skip over quickly. And yet God has some incredible lessons. The key verses to the books are in 1 Chronicles 5, 2, where it says, For Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him came the chief ruler, but the birthright was Joseph's. Once again, speaking of where Christ would come from. 2 Chronicles 15, 8 through 9, it says, When Asa heard these words and the prophecy as Oded the prophet, he took courage. And put away the abominable idols out of the land of Judah and Benjamin and out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simon, for they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Well, we see one of those revivals there. I'd encourage you if you have time, and I put them here in your outline, to go and look at some of those revivals and the men that God would use to, to spur that on in the nation of Israel. There's lessons to be learned there, but the outline of these books... First Chronicles obviously begins with genealogy, the genealogies in chapter 1 through 9, and uh, it is an important part. Saul's reign, chapter 10, and this is from the viewpoint of the priests, remember. First and second Chronicles, these are from the viewpoint of the priests. So Saul gets barely a mention, barely a mention compared to the other books. Uh, God let him fade into the background, and uh, his death is recorded, and the reason for it is recorded in that book. But God wasn't too impressed. David's reign, chapters 11 through 29, you see that in those books. David's mighty men, David and the ark, David and the temple, David's wars, David's sin and numbering the people. We're going to go there here shortly. David's preparation and organization for the building of the temple. Then in 2 Chronicles, you see Solomon's reign. Obviously, the building of the temple, his most important accomplishment. Outside of that, we note him for his wisdom and his wealth, but he sure strayed from the Lord. Wisdom and wealth didn't bring him necessarily all the time closer to the Lord. The division of the kingdom and the history of Judah. Uh, the Reformations were given prominence. In, in chapters 14 through 16, you see the revival under Asa. Jehoshaphat in chapters 17 through 20. Jo- Joash's in chapters 23 and 24. Hezekiah's in chapter 29 through 32. Josiah's in chapter 34 and 35. And uh, I'd encourage you to go there. Talk about a passage of scripture, those passages of scripture that teach us how to draw nigh to God. I like in James where it says, draw nigh to God, cleanse your hands, ye sinners, purify your hearts, ye double-minded, or draw nigh to God, and he'll draw nigh to you. And in this passage of scripture, we see kings and peoples trying to draw nigh to God. Oftentimes it was led by a man and the people would get in line for a generation. And as that man passed off the scene, sometimes they went right back to it. Thus the coming rebuke of the Lord. There's incredible passages that teach us about uh, about how to draw nigh to God and how to draw near to Him through the Scripture in those revivals that would take place in, in, in Israel. The message I'd like to preach from tonight is in chapter 21 of 1 Chronicles, if you turn there, chapter 21. And this, this passage of Scripture records one of, one of David's great downfalls, one of David's great downfalls when Satan stood up David fell down, and uh, is the title of it, but 1 Chronicles chapter 21 and verse 1. It said, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and to the rulers of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba even to Dan, and bring the number of them to me, that I may know it. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people a hundred times so many as they be. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will, we, why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. 
And Joab gave the sum of the number of the people unto David, and all they of Israel were a thousand thousand and a hundred and thousand men that drew sword. And Judah was four, four hundred three, and threescore and ten thousand men that drew sword. But Levi and Benjamin counted he not among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with this thing. Therefore he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away with the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. And the Lord spake unto Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Choose thee, either three years famine, or three months to be destroyed before thy foes, while the sword of thine enemies overtaketh thee. Or else three days the sword of the Lord, even the pestilence in the land, and the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the coasts of Israel. Now therefore advise thyself what word I shall bring again to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent pestilence upon Israel, and there fell of Israel 70,000 men. And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. As he was destroying, the Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil, and said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough to say, Stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand, stretched out over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders of Israel, who were clothed in sackcloth, fell upon their faces. And David said unto God, Is it not I that commanded the people to be numbered, even as e even I it is that have sinned and done evil indeed? But as for these sheep, they ha what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, O Lord my God, be on me and on my father's house, but not on thy people, that they should be plagued. Then the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go up and set an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. And David went up, saying of Gad, which he spake in the name of the Lord. We'll pause there. But here we see uh, what catches my attention is that first verse. And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number uh, Israel. In the book of First uh, Samuel, our second, I think it's First Samuel chapter twenty-four, Second Samuel chapter twenty-four. We see the story from the opposite end, or from the opposite viewpoint. And in that passage of scripture, it records that the Lord was angry with David. In this one, it records that Satan stood up. And and I take those two portions of scripture together, and I and I get a little bit of a picture, if you will, uh, maybe something similar to Job, what Job experienced. Uh, there in the in early in the book of Job, and in Job, you know that Satan came before the Lord, and uh, and the Lord, and he said, Lord asked him where he'd been. He said, going to and fro about the earth. And the Lord asked him, Have you considered my servant Job? And uh, obviously, the the trials that would begin to unfold on the life of of Job. But Job had been faithful and was faithful and was regarded that by the Lord. And I, I picture in my own mind, and I'm going to ask the Lord about when I get to it about Satan before the Lord and. The Lord just letting whatever was taking place in David's life, letting Satan go, go do some tempting work in his life like he did with Job and said, let's go see where David is at. And here we see Joe, David fall, one of his great transgressions. When you think of David, often we think of some great victories, but we also think of great failures. Seems like David really didn't fall in between a whole lot, did he? And, uh, but we think of some of his, his standout victories over, over Goliath and over the Philistines and all of those things. And then we think of Bathsheba. And then we see this one here where his confidence 
and the Lord begins to wane, and he begins to put his confidence in the armies that he had. And he said, Joab, go number the people. Satan stood up against him. And I, I think of this in our Christian life, the reality of these temptations coming into our life. 1 Peter 5, 8 through 9 says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour whom resist steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. I wonder if this passage of Scripture, we see Satan move against Israel, but we see David just fall flat on his face when it came to the temptation in his life. Uh, Christian, I, I think of this, this, the Scripture warns us over and over again, specifically in, there in Peter that we read, of the need of, of this fact of temptation in our life. And I think... In this passage of Scripture, we get a lesson on how not to fall. <laughs> how not to fall. How, if you will, to be on guard in our Christian life so that when Satan stands up, because there will come a day in your life when Satan will stand up. Faith that can't be tested can't be what? Trusted. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh what? Patience, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. God uses the trials of our life to expose the weaknesses of our life that we might be drawn nearer to the Lord. The things are coming into our life. They are inevitable aspects of the Christian life. God uses them to strengthen us. Our own flesh is weak. And in this passage of Scripture, we see one of the mightiest men that we see recorded in Scripture fall flat on his face. In, the, in, in face of what Satan would bring into his life. I think there's some lessons to be learned here on how to avoid that fall. And the first one, I think, is to practice awareness in our life. And Satan stood up against Israel. That verse again in 1 Peter, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Ephesians 2, 2 through 3 says, Wherein in the times past ye walked according to the course of the worst world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past and the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. We see an enemy walking about looking to devour. Satan. He calls him Satan. Satan has different titles. He's known as the serpent. We see him here as a lion or a devourer. Satan means adversary. The word devil means accuser or slanderer. He was a destroyer. He, and we see that in this passage of Scripture that Satan is doing his work. You know, Christian, I think if we're not careful, we walk around oblivious to the fact that the devil would love to bring us to, our, to a fall. To a fall. I wonder where it was that David grew, if you will, almost grew content in his life. And we don't see a whole lot of the setting around what happened here. But, but it says that Satan stood up against him. And I think this, Christian, you should, you should remind yourself that Satan will stand up against you. And he doesn't even have to do it by himself. The Bible reminds us when he was cast out of heaven, he took a third part of the angels with him. He's not alone. He's not weak. He's wise. He's, he's, he's not weak, and he's, he's the prince and power of the air in which we live. And this, this world, God has given him somewhat of a reign in this world. As a matter of fact, before you knew Christ, you were under his, his influence, if you will. Thankfully, we've been saved. And the Holy Spirit of God is still at work in our heart. But the reality is we have an enemy in, the, in Satan. 
Have you given thought to the fact that the old devil is after your home and your family and your life and your testimony and would love nothing better than to destroy it all? I think of the 70,000 men, the Bible says, died because David counted his people. And that's the men recorded. They recorded by, by the men, but there would have been others. 70,000. I'm sure the devil was rejoicing that day when David looked at Joab and said, go count. Go count. Christian, we need to live with an awareness in our life as we go through our day. Our day. The devil is seeking to ruin me. And my flesh is not working in my favor. This world is not working in my favor. You know, you should have a healthy skepticism when you walk out into this world. Healthy skepticism with this reality. This world is under the prince and power of the air. And he is out to destroy my life, to walk circumspectly. Every once in a while, my um, Nathaniel will wake up in the middle of the night and he'll start hollering. That boy talks in his sleep, I think, more than any of our children. And uh, he'll start hollering. And I like it when he says, Mama, Mama, Mama. That means I can go back to sleep or pretend that I'm still sleeping. My wife, uh, she can't argue with me now. She's lost her voice. And what happened is, like Miriam in the Old Testament, you know, she spoke against uh, uh, Moses and God gave her leprosy. My wife raised her voice and he took her voice, all right? And no, I'm teasing, all right? She can't argue with me. I'm in lots of trouble. It was probably her who gave me this graying stuff. And, uh, and it's probably her. But uh, no, we, we see, uh, uh, you know, but when my son will holler in the night and you walk into those boys' room, I'm gonna tell you something. You're gonna walk circumspectly. If you don't, you will shortly be crying out in pain, all right? You will sort Legos, army guys, Nerf guns, um, all kinds of booby traps become laid in that room at night, all right? And uh, who knows what they're doing there. But I think of this, so as I go, usually I reach for my phone and try to turn on that flashlight, or when I walk into the room, I shuffle. You know, you, you shuffle like this, just in case there's a booby trap laid somewhere. But I'm walking carefully and cautiously. I, I will tell you this, Christian. In the Christian life, we should walk carefully and cautiously, very aware that we face an enemy. When confronted with the things of the world, with the philosophies of the world, with the things in our life, there is a devil who desires to destroy us. There is a devil who desires, desires to take our testimony and who desires to bring us to our knees. There should be an awareness in the Christian life. And I, I think sometimes we lose that awareness. The Lord would call us to, in Ephesians chapter 6, to take up the whole armor of God. To be ready to stand in an evil day. To, be, to have an awareness to our life. This one will sound similar to the first, but it's different. To practice watchfulness. Not only an awareness to recognize we are under attack, but because of that awareness that it's there, to practice watchfulness in our life. Matthew 26, 41 says this, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is what? Weak. First John 4, 3 through 4 says, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And that is that spirit of the Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come. Even now already it is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the what? 
world. Now, we face a, a big enemy. And if you look to the scripture and, and spend any time at all seeing who Satan is and who he came from, you'd say, what a mighty enemy we face. But God does not expect me to face him alone, does he? He says in his word, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He did not say greater are you than he that is in the world. He didn't say greater are you alone than he that is in the world. He said greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That Holy Spirit of God, God God who is greater than him. You and I would be mincemeat before him, but with God we have a greater greater victory. I think of David the shepherd before, before Goliath. Was it the shepherd boy who killed Goliath or was it God who made Goliath fall? Was it the people of Israel who parted the Jordan River? Or was it God who parted the Jordan River? Was it the people of Israel that parted the Red Sea? Or was it God that parted the Red Sea? So you can look to the scripture and you can see mighty works done through men, but they were done through men, not by men. Through men. And God has not changed his method. God does mighty things through men because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And the Lord would remind us of that need. And uh, we have, I'm thankful that we may face a great enemy, but we have a greater one on our side. But he calls us to this matter of watchfulness when it comes to it. And what does he say in, in Matthew 26, 41, when he's speaking to his disciples just before his crucifixion? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. I think of what he would say in the model prayer, that, that outline on prayer. And when we, we call it the Lord's Prayer, he'd said, and lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from evil. What, is it, what does it mean to watch in prayer? Pray about all things. Philippians 4, 6. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. If you look at this chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, you'll see it says, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and to the two rulers of the people, Go number Israel. Notice there, there should, I, would, I wish that verse 1 and verse 2, I wish verse 2 was actually verse 3. And somewhere between verse 1 and verse 2, we say, Satan provoked David to number the people, but David prayed and sought the wisdom of the Lord. And God said, Don't do that, David. And so God, David got up from there and did not number the people. But that is not what we find David doing, do it, did we? No prayer. No prayer. I think of, I think of Joshua and the people of Israel when they came into the, the promised land. The Gibeonites came to them and we find something there as they consider whether to make a league with the Gibeonites. No prayer. I think of after, after Joshua and the people took the city of Jericho and they went to move on to Ai and yet there was sin in the camp and they said, well, we've got Jericho, but Ai is just a little country. You know what you'll find? This little city that they thought they could take? No prayer. And what did they find? Defeat. A little bitty city, a little bitty temptation. As a matter of fact, when I read this story, I look at just numbering the people. But no prayer. No dependence. He didn't pray. He was going to lean on the strength of his people. Tell me how many we've got, and that way I'll know how strong we are. And even Joab would warn him against this, but David would not stop to pray. I I think of this. You know how we remain watchful? We have an awareness that Satan is after us. So we remain watchful by spending time in prayer. Pray about everything. Pray about it all. Have your time of prayer. Walk with God as you go through your day, praying as you go about your business. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be careful for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. What did God ask us to leave off the table of prayer? Nothing. He said, but pray about everything. 
certainly about the big things as we spend individual time in the, with the Lord, but as we go through our routines of our day, are we walking with God and seeking his wisdom even in the small tasks of the day? Pray about everything. Be watchful. A watchful Christian who is aware of the enemy they face, they spend time with the one who is greater than the one that is in the world. See all things through the lens of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, you know the verse, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. View everything through the lens of Scripture, not Scripture through the lens of everything else. A big mistake that we can make in the Christian life is we view the Scripture through the lens of our circumstance, rather our circumstance through the lens of Scripture. We need to look at our circumstances through who God is and what God has said, not look at who God is through the lens of our circumstance. Anybody ever, I've got to pick a couple pairs of binoculars, and anybody ever use the binoculars and you flip them around the wrong side, <laughs> right? Now you, you look at them through the right direction, and everything appears closer, doesn't it? But you flip around them wrong, and everything appears further away and much smaller. You know, when you're looking through Scripture, you're either going to see God as bigger or God as lesser than the struggle that you face. Whether you're going to look through the struggle through the lens of Scripture and see how big God is and how small the circumstance is, or you're going to flip it. And you're going to think God is small and your circumstance is big. But Scripture brings everything into the correct perspective. And there is one who spoke this world into existence. There is one who created all things, sustains all things. There, there is one who upholds it with the word of his power. There is one, we sang the song a few minutes ago, that loves us, who answers, hears and answers prayer. And I can make a decision in my life to see all things that I go through through the lens of Scripture or through to see the Scripture through the lens of my circumstance. I know when I've reversed it, when I say about the promises and the instruction of the word of God, but this is what I'm going through. I know what the Bible says, or I feel it in my heart. I know what the Bible says, but this is where I'm at. You know what I've done is I've looked at my circumstance, or I've looked at the Scripture through the lens of my circumstance rather than my circumstance through the lens of Scripture. And mistakes happen. The watchful Christian used the Scripture as a lamp unto their feet and a light unto the path who lets the light of this word shine upon their circumstances, not let the circumstance cast a shadow on the light of God's word. If we're not careful, we let circumstances cast shadows upon the promises of God's word rather than let the word of God cast the light upon our circumstance, all based upon the way we view his word. I will tell you this, a watchful spirit is a watchful spirit is one that watches with God and prays and takes this book and keeps it out in front of them and says, what is, here is my circumstance, here is the scripture. Here is the world and here is scripture. Here's what I'm dealing with, but here's what the Bible says. Rather than saying, I know what the Bible says, but this is what I'm dealing with. And this is what I'm dealing with, but this is what the Bible says. Watchfulness. And I think how many times the old devil brings us to our needs because rather than letting the scripture speak into our circumstance, we let the circumstance speak into his word. And it's the wrong order. It is the wrong order. The world is 
Not a pretty place. And Satan is a big enemy, but greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. His word is greater. His might is greater. And a watchful man views it all through the lens of Scripture and prays about it all. He, he has an awareness. Friend, walk with an awareness that this world is not working in your favor, that Satan is after you, that your flesh is weak. Walk with that awareness. And in light of that, be watchful. Be a person of prayer. Call upon him, depend upon him. Look at everything through the lens of his word because I cannot trust my flesh. I cannot trust this world and I certainly should not trust Satan, but I can trust God and I can trust his word. What has he said? I wish David had been more watchful and more aware. Practice receptiveness. Look at verse three and four. And Joab answered, The Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Wherefore, Joab departed and went through all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Practice receptiveness. Proverbs 11, 14 says, where no counsel is, the people fall but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, purposes are disappointed, but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Proverbs 24, 6, for by wise counsel, thou shalt make thy war, and in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Even carnal Joab knew what they were doing was wrong. It wasn't that God didn't put someone in David's way to say, hold up, buddy. Just David just went right on through. You know, Christian, can I encourage you to percept Practice receptiveness to the counsel of godly folks around you and to seek it out. To seek it out. Too often we are too confident in ourselves rather than seeking a receptiveness. I think of, we looked at this in our men's meeting the other night, but I I think of the folks that God used. I think of Moses and Aaron. I think of those fellas. Think of David and Jonathan. Elijah and Elisha. Paul and Barnabas. We go on and on through the scripture. Those who sought it, who had it. Then we find folks like Amnon had a friend in Jonadab. The exact opposite. Friend, do you allow others? Do you seek? Do you seek the godly counsel of others? Can I encourage you, friend? Whenever you have a major decision to make, regardless of what you think you know about it, you should get a perspective. In this passage of Scripture, we see David just mow his way on through. And he, he, he didn't look to the folks that God had placed into his life to, to speak into it. And I, and I, I wonder how many times we, we walk into something because we, we just didn't listen. We just didn't listen. We barreled our way through. We didn't seek that folks that pray for us or are concerned for us, and we didn't seek that in our life. And as a result of that failure, and we see in David's life, his, his awareness was down, his watchfulness was down, and certainly his receptiveness was down. Joab would speak, and he would just look at him, I told you to go count. And Joab will go and count. And finally, we see this one. We see practice repentance, practice repentance. David was good at this. Verse 7, it says, and God was displeased with the thing. 
Therefore he smote Israel. And David said unto God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I beseech thee, do away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. The Lord would give him his options to choose. And in verse 13 it says, And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let me fall now into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. Aren't you? I'm thankful for that. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for very great are his mercies. I think there you find one of the keys that David be a man after God's own heart. He knew where to fall when he was wrong. But let me not fall into the hands of man. You skip down to verse 22. Then David said unto Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor, that I may build an altar there and unto the Lord, that thou grant it for me for a full price, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Ornan said unto David, Take it to thee. And let my lord the king do that which is good in thine eyes. Lo, I give thee the oxen also for a burnt offerings and the threshing instruments for wood and the wheat for the meat offerings. I give it all. And King David said to Ornan, Nay, but I will verily buy it for the full price. For I will not take that which is thine for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings without cost. So David gave to Ornan for the place 600 shekels of gold by the weight. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called upon the Lord. And he answered him for heaven by fire upon the altar of burnt offerings. Boy, that must have been a relief for him. And the Lord commanded the angel, and he put up his sword again into the sheath thereof. At that time when David saw that the Lord had answered him in the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, then he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses made in the wilderness, and the altar of the burnt offerings, were at that season in the high place at Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God, for he was afraid because of the sword of the angel of the Lord. He, he was a repentant man. You see it in his brokenness. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord. Let me offer him, and I won't offer him that which costs me nothing. I will offer him a sacrifice before the Lord. You see his broken, I, I know how he would repent in uh, Psalms chapter 51 when he would confess his sin with Bathsheba. And a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not, what? despise. He was repentance. And I think of this Christian, practice repentance in your life. When you fall, fall into his hands. David fell and when he knew he was wrong, you know what he did? He said, don't let me fall into the hand of man. Let me fall into the hand of God for very great are his mercies. Lord, I was wrong. Be quick. Be quick to get right when you find yourself in the wrong. David quickly repented of his sin, of his wrongdoing. Second Corinthians, I think the verse is on your outline. It says this in Second Chronicles, I'm sorry, Second Chronicles chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem and Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared unto David his father, in the place where David prepared in the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Is it an amazing thing? This place of repentance became the place for God's dwelling among his people. God loves to dwell with a repentant heart. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, thou wilt not despise. Several, quite some time from that point, in the same area, on a hillside, our Savior would give his life on Calvary that you and I might be saved. Repentance. What God does with the repentant heart in the Christian's life. Practice in your life. Friend, we, we, we face an enemy in this world and I, I think we should be aware of it. We shouldn't walk without, we, sh- we should walk circumspectly in this world. Spirit-led Christians, recognizing the devil's after us, the world's not in our favor, and our flesh is weak. But there is one that is greater within me than he that is in the world. And so because of that, we practice a watchfulness in our life. 
a prayerful watchfulness, a scripture-led watchfulness, looking at the world through the lens of the word. We follow him and we follow what he has for us in our life. We practice a receptiveness to those that God places in our life as we hear the godly counsel of those that we may not fall. I wish David had spent time in prayer. I wish he had heard the warning. And I bet 70,000 men whose lives were lost wished the same thing. But he didn't. But when he fell, he knew where to fall. He had fallen into sin and lost his dependence upon the Lord. And he said, let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for he is merciful. Everybody falls. But when we fall, Christian, let's fall into his mercy. A merciful God. A merciful God. And as he repented before the Lord, the Lord would use that same place to build his temple, to be among his people. Talk about, a, talk about a picture. God dwells in the broken and contrite heart. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, that wilt not despise. Friend, keep, keep a heart that is tender and broken before the Lord. A heart that God can speak to, a heart that God can work in and work through. And practice that awareness that watchfulness, that receptiveness, and stay close to God. Because, friend, we, we do face an enemy in this world. And sometimes I think we walk as if he didn't exist. We walk as if he didn't exist. We walk like the world is in our favor, and our flesh really isn't that weak. <laughs> in reality, the flip side of those are all true. My flesh is weak. Satan is against me, and this world is not for me. And so I must be aware I must be watchful. I must be receptive. And when we fall, we must be repented to call upon the Lord, to quickly repent before him. But let's pray together. Lord, I love you and I thank you so much for the scripture and thank you for this story here in the middle of Chronicles. Lord, a little glimpse from the perspective of a priest and Lord, through the eyes of our Lord that we could get a, a, Lord, a, New, Testament, a New Testament lesson from this Old Testament story and one of being watchful. I think of how you would tell your disciples to watch and pray that they enter not in temptation. I pray that we would leave here a watchful people tonight, an aware and watchful people, practicing receptives and repentance. Lord, if there's somewhere, an area in our heart where we need to repent tonight, I pray that we would be quick to do it, to fall into the mercy of the Lord, into the hands of the Lord. But certainly when we walk out of here tonight, we would be very aware of what we face, but also watchful, recognizing there is someone greater within us than he that is in the world. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Let me ask you tonight, first of all, if you say, Preacher, I know that I'm saved and on my way to heaven. That thing is settled for me. Would you raise your hand as a testimony? And uh, thank you. you. may put your hand down. I believe that to be everybody. Let me ask you this then. How many of you say, Preacher, the Lord has spoken to my heart. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a matter of repentance, some area that God touched your heart about specifically. Maybe just that watchfulness or that awareness or that receptiveness. But you say, Preacher, the Lord has spoken to my heart somewhere in the message tonight. And would you stand with me as that pianist begins to play, as God has spoken to your heart and time of prayer is given. Spend time with the Lord. Don't do what, maybe you're in the middle of a trial. And the Lord reminded you, have you spent time with me? Have you prayed about it? Have you watched over it? But as God has spoken to your heart, spend time with him this evening.